Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. Hi, my friends who listen to Future Primitive. I have a bio of the person I'm interviewing open here, and it says, who is Tina Benson? Well, Tina Benson, MA, is a modern-day soul whisperer and transpersonal union-oriented coach. She has over 30 years' experience teaching, leading, and facilitating individuals, groups, larger and small groups in the United States and abroad in consciousness explorations, chakra initiation, meditation retreats, couples and women's retreats, ecstatic dancing, voice dialogue, enneagram, chanting, ritual, and travel to sacred sites around the world. She is the founder and creator of Soul Speaks Project and is also a non-denominational ordained minister. I think it was yesterday that her book was published. It's called A Woman Unto Herself, A Different Kind of Love Story. So I think I'll begin by saying welcome, Tina. And Thank you, Joanna. Are there different kinds of love? Oh, my goodness. We're going to start right there, huh? Right there. <laughs> um, well, there aren't a whole lot of, there aren't any that I'm aware of, myths, fairy tales, stories that talk about the love story with one's own internal beloved. There's a lot of myths and fairy tales and books and stories and films that describe the relationship with an outer lover that, you know, we meet, we fall in love, the birds sing, and we ride off into the sunset to live happily ever after. And that's not what this story is. This was the journey of my attempts to find love outside of myself, the harrowing labyrinth of relationships that I encountered along the way, and ultimately the turning inward to find and greet my own inner beloved. So this is a book that um, I have read, and, um, you know, I'm very big about women telling the truth about themselves. And this quote I don't have in front of me, which is, if one woman told the truth about herself, it would change the world. Well, many are right now, but why did you want to tell this truth about yourself that's not always pretty? know that I made a conscious decision to tell the story, Joanna. It, it was, um, this book pushed its way out of me like I was giving birth. And I originally imagined when I sat down to write that I was going to write a relationship guide for couples. Because that's been my area of expertise for the last, you know, 30 plus years. And shortly after I wrote the first third of the book, my personal relationship fell apart when I found out that my lover was having affairs. My whole world came crashing down. My father died shortly thereafter. And I tumbled into a abyss where I had to make sense out of my life. And so I started writing from that point forward not with any idea to publish a book, but to sort my way through the aftermath of my heartbreak and the betrayal. And I just was writing. 
its way out of me. And I had no intention of, uh, I I didn't know whether the book was going to be for anybody else's eyes but my own. I just had to write. I just had to get it out. And uh, when it was done, I don't know if you want me to go into the whole detail of how, how it became to, came to be, um, but the synchronicity of it was simply that two days after I wrote the last words of the book, and I, at that point, really didn't know if it was just for my own eyes, mm-hmm. I was contacted out of the blue by a person who had seen my bio on the TEDx Marin Board of Advisors, mm-hmm. and she said she had to meet with me. She didn't know why. And I met with her two days later, and uh, she brought along a friend. And they were looking to create a consortium of women spiritual teachers. And I said, well, I'm not sure that's where my life is going right now. And I casually, offhandedly said, I just finished uh, writing a book, and I'm not sure what's going to happen with that. And the other woman, what, not even the woman who had contacted me, but the other woman said, tell me about your book. And I told her, and she said, you should contact this friend of mine. He's an editor. I sent the editor my manuscript the next day. So this is three days after I wrote the last word. Right. And he said, send me your manuscript. And I did. And 24 hours later, he contacted me. And I said to him, when I sent it, just tell me if you think this is a story that's meant for anybody else but me. A, and B, is it any good? And C, should I pursue getting it published? And he wrote me back 24 hours later, and he said, I've been up all night reading your manuscript, and it is magnificent. It should be published. It's very well written, and it will serve a lot of people. And that was the impetus that propelled me into pursuing getting it published. And if it hadn't been for that chance and, you know, seemingly chance encounter, um, the whole book might still be sitting on my computer. And and that was Christian de Quincey. Yeah, well, yeah. yes, it was, it was his friend Reba was one of the two women who came to meet me, right. and she was the one who connected me to Christian, who became my editor. I think he's a remarkable man, and I've, I've had the pleasure of interviewing him. Oh, lovely, what a small world. yeah. In a small world, he had a, he had unwavering belief in this book, and that was what that was the wind beneath my wings that got me willing to believe that it was a book I should get behind and get out there. Well, he's a very wise man, so or in my perspective, yeah. And Tina, really, yeah. Tina, what, what? are you saying in this book what are you what is the deepest deepest thing thought feeling that you are conveying in this book ah you you ask such great questions joanna um the most important thing i would say is that when we go out of ourselves looking for another to make us whole, we are aborting a very important journey inward and that the journey inward to finding our own internal beloved, the the internal reflection that can hold us as beautiful and loving and worthy and deserving is a place to have first before we go out looking for an outer partner. And that journey is a magnificent journey home to oneself. And uh, I was the last to, you know, I, I spent much of my life going outside of myself looking for someone outside of me to make me whole. I had uh, had early childhood trauma in my life. I'd lost my mother when I was two and a half. I had a father who was uh, emotionally unavailable and a bit misogynistic and didn't quite understand how to raise a young girl who had a healthy sense of her own self-esteem and self-worth. And so I found myself going outward 
to find relationships and men in particular who could reflect my worth back to me. And um, that doesn't work so well when you're looking outside yourself to find that. Right, right. So, you know, when enough of those attempts failed and the last one failed so gloriously in terms of my lover uh, having other relationships and affairs, I had to turn inward. I had to find myself inside. And that was already after a 30-plus year of being on a spiritual journey where I thought I had been looking inside. Uh, But, you know, there's several rings around the mountain, and this was a deeper cut than I had ever taken before. And Mm -hmm. um, so I guess that's one of the deepest messages. Another is that the way that we learned as children to get love, the strategies that we employed to get whatever love we could get, defines how we go about getting love from that moment forward into our adulthood. And if those strategies were constructed at a time when we had very uh, primitive strategies, they're not necessarily the best ones to go about finding love as an adult. And we need to relook at where those strategies came from, the woundings that, that set them in motion. And... Um, rethink whether that's really the best way to go about finding love in our life. I I was talking with my daughter this morning, and um, what we came to is that very often as women, and probably as men, but I'm in a woman's body at this time, we vacillate in our relationships between guilt and abandonment. I mean, can you relate to that? Well, certainly abandonment, you know, having lost my mother, walked out the door when I was two and a half. So certainly the fear of being abandoned, the unconscious belief that I had done something to cause that to happen uh, certainly propelled my strategy for getting love. My fear of being abandoned, I carried with me into all of my relationships. It was an Achilles heel for me in my relationships to feel like, for example, you know, before I really started doing some deep internal work on myself, if somebody didn't return a phone call, it never never occurred to me that uh, they got busy. It occurred to me that I had done something wrong and they didn't love me and they had abandoned me and that was the end and I was never going to see them again. Guilt... Yeah, I think guilt in terms of, you know, as a child, when, a, when in my case, my mother leaves, there isn't a capacity in the psyche of a child to understand that that adult was broken and couldn't stay and had her own wounds and troubles and traumas. The child looks at that and says, it must have been me. I'm guilty. I caused that to happen. And then that we carry that with us, too, for the rest of our lives, unless we take a really good, hard look. And, you know, we can't afford as children to see the failings of our caregivers, because if we really absorbed their failings, we would feel paralyzingly terrified in an out-of-control world. Well, you know, that's a place where... When you were talking about that in your book and how your mother left you and then you understood later that you took on the guilt, um, I I have my own theory about that. I do think that when these things happen when we're children, we take on the guilt because we need to take back some power because in a sense when something like that happens it's an unconscious loss of power yes and and then if too many things happen like that when we're children that take away our power then we we grow into having a completely misguided sense of power right it's a it's a false omnipotence false empowerment i call it yeah yeah it's completely false power to 
to believe that I could cause my mother to leave when I was two and a half years old. A two and a half year old can't cause an adult to walk away from her child. But yes, it's the 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 way that we can feel some sense of power in an utterly powerless situation. And then that false power we carry with us too. Absolutely. So let's say, as in your book, you discover that, uh, that the man you love is, is having affairs. In the beginning, do you, did you feel guilty that, it, that you might be at fault? I mean, did you have that sense of false empowerment? Well, I certainly went through, briefly, I must say, questioning, you know, where was I not enough? Where was I inadequate? What wasn't I supplying him? But I knew enough about his um, history uh, to know that I knew that he had had affairs during his marriage. I didn't know that he had had affairs in every single relationship he'd ever been in. And I certainly didn't know he was having affairs while we were together. Um, so that sense that I was guilty for his affairs didn't last very long. But what I really had to take an, a brutal look at was all the signs were there from the very beginning. And I was willfully ignoring them because I didn't want right. to see what I didn't want to see. So that was really where the journey began for me. The, you know, the pain, there was the initial wave of pain of his betrayal, but then I, the deeper, the really deeper issue was I betrayed myself right. by ignoring all the signs that were there for me to see. Then I had to look at, well, why did I betray myself and where did I learn to betray myself? Where did I learn to turn away from what I didn't want to see and distort it right, into something right. that I did want to see? Because that was, that, those were my childhood strategies. So you recently traveled to India to the, uh, say, to the Kuma, I, I should know these words, but that, that yeah, this giant. A prayer festival and you've been to India many times do you perceive spirit as your beloved now really deeply and can you describe that well as I describe in my book I had a very early experience at age seven of being flooded with a numinosity that I could only describe as spirit now. I was lying in my backyard looking up at the sky, and I was in an ordinary state of consciousness, and I could say, well, I'm a person, and this is the grass, and those are clouds, and those are trees. And then all of a sudden, it was as if the veils that separate me from everything vanished, and I was flooded with uh, uh, an overwhelming experience of profound and unconditional love, and a, a knowing in my little seven-year-old body, a knowing somehow that that was more true than anything else, mm -hmm. and that I am and we all are <clears throat> connected to everything, and we come from this whatever this overwhelming, unconditionally loving presence is. That's what we come from, that's what we are made of, and it is to that that we return, and we are an expression of. And uh, so it has taken me a lifetime to find my way to inhabiting and embodying that relationship with that presence. It you know, it vanished at that moment when I was seven. It didn't come again until I was 20. And when it came again when I was 20, I set out consciously at that point to, to understand what that was and to find my way to it. And much of my life, I found my way to it through my communion 
with my outer lovers. Mm-hmm. That was the deepest spiritual pathway that I had, and the most immediate gateway for me was through loving and lovemaking. And when I was in love with somebody and connected to them deeply at the heart and making love, all the gateways would open and the veils would part and I would be there again. What happened when I had the betrayal was I walked my way so deeply inside myself that I found what you're calling spirit um, as a permanent inhabitant in the center of my own heart. Mm-hmm. And that ecstatic lovemaking as an ongoing internal experience in the center of my own being, which is an ecstasy so far beyond what I was experiencing with my outer lovers. It it was um, uh, um, a cause for significant hallelujah, I should say. I don't know. I don't even know the words. There's no words at some point for that. And it, it doesn't, in my experience, as I've been experiencing it, it doesn't preclude loving an outer beloved. But to feel connected to this internal lover and to bring that union to an outer relationship feels like a very different uh, meeting place. Can that uh, inner lover, can, can that fulfill you sexually? <laughs> hmm. That's such a great question. <laughs> <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> That's a perfect answer. So, to, to a good question, a perfect answer, but now... Elaborate, please. Okay. Well, there are some times, some moments, when I am in such an internal state of rapture um, and bliss that uh, nothing, nothing is missing. Nothing is necessary. Nothing is lacking. It is complete and utterly whole uh, unto itself. There are also times when I long for the touch of a lover, the physical, embodied, fingers on my skin, touch of a a lover, and the eye contact of a lover, and the sharing that happens with an outer lover. So it's this and that, I would say. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the moments when it is, completely and utterly whole unto itself, nothing is lacking. And in those moments, I could and have imagined dissolving into a Himalayan cave and existing in that state of ecstasy forevermore. Uh But I don't think that was the journey that I came into this lifetime to have. I was a householder. I was married for 23 years. I have two children. I'm of this world in a way that, for example, you mentioned the Kumamela. Mm-hmm. The sadhus and the nagas are not. Yeah. You know, I sat with them for days while I was there, and they have relinquished all ties to this outer world that we are a part of. And in this lifetime, I think I'm meant to straddle both worlds. Well, I would say that there is nothing like the Church of Skin. <laughs> and I think I pray the Church of Skin. <laughs> I think that's why we were, we were, our our spirits and souls were covered with this. I'm a, I'm very um, I'm 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 looking at my own skin right now. <laughs> I I think that's why why we were given this fantastic skin suit that we have. Yes such a beautiful sensate organ that it is right with so much pleasure right. that it can receive and give absolutely 
you know, I, I, I could have, I imagine I could have, let me say, I imagine many times throughout my life that I could have gone the way of a nun and devoted my heart, body, and soul to spirit and uh, taken a vow, a brahmacharya vow of chastity in the outer world. That's because you're so passionate. But yes, but, but the truth, if I'm actually really telling the truth, is I am an embodied woman who loves touch and loving and lovemaking has always been a very deeply profound gateway for me. And I don't think I could have done... I, maybe I had been a renunciate in a prior lifetime, but certainly not in this lifetime. Well, when I was reading your book, um, I remembered how... By remembering, I mean that every sense in my body remembered that when I, when I'm making love with another person and I'm connected with them, it's the closer I feel to what I would call infinity. Mm. Every moment feels like there is no beginning or no end to the moment. Beautiful. And I, and I remembered that from reading your book, and I, I, I feel there must be a reason that that is, if we're open to it, that, that is what connects us to infinity, all time, uh, exo space and time. <laughs> yeah, what a what a lovely reflection for me that that would be something you would yes re- remember in your own body by reading my book. That's yes, a beautiful thing for you to have received from the book. And all I can say is that the journey that I took inward surprisingly had me find that that is not just dependent on my being with an outer lover, that that sense of infinity where there is moments with no beginning and end that can go utterly on and on like ripples of ecstasy can happen internally. There, there was a day I was driving to work. It was 8 o'clock in the morning, a usual day. I was in my car on my way to my office, and I was exploding with longing for the divine. Mm-hmm. My heart was just aching, and mm-hmm. I was lo- filled with such immense longing for the divine. And I realized that it was the longing itself that was filling me with so much divine that I was in a state of rapture. I was just in a completely timeless, spaceless infinity of rapture. I have no idea how I got to my office that day. Um, but, yes, yeah, so, you know, there are moments when I, when I am, when, when I can, it feels as if in the center of my body, Shiva and Shakti are making love mm-hmm. inside my body. I, I feel that's that's what happens with your book. We were talking before how uh, how it surprised you because it had quickly gone bestseller in some countries and categories, and um, I I feel that's what it is about your book is that it is truly erotic. And um, sexually and spiritually erotic. Mm. And we spiritually erotic. I love that. We need that. <laughs> yeah, we do. There's not a lot in our, and certainly in our culture, that brings that alive. You know, the, this culture that we find ourselves in is uh, so filled with problematic 
mythologies and fairy tales about love. Um, they send people down the garden path towards disappointment, I fear, more than actual awakening. And, you know, I do hope that my book inspires readers to find their foot, their feet on a path of spiritual eroticism. Beautiful. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's something I, I miss a lot, uh, particularly in America, in old-fashioned, we used to call it flirting, but yeah. there's something in between, and that's what I pick up in your book, and I I don't know why, but it's embedded in the spirit of the book. There's a very thin line in between being, being overtly provocative, inappropriately provocative between a man and a woman or a woman and a woman and a man and a man. And this very fine erotic play that is so close to music, to composing music. Yeah. And poetry and all great yeah. works of art come yeah. from that very sublime layer, you know, just behind the veil mm-hmm. where you can sense, smell, perceive, and feel that there is a grand mystery right behind the veil, and you're close enough to perceive it but not everything is revealed, is where the magic happens. And to play with that with something with somebody else okay. is just about the most exquisite. <laughs> <laughs> I could not agree more. <laughs> that is the divine play of Eros. That's the great mystery play right there. And there's, is, there's so the much humor in it, isn't there? So much humor. It's joy. It's Leela. It's Leela. It's the Leela of the gods, you know? They didn't take it all so seriously. It's, it's utter play and Leela and joy and lightness of being. And it can be deep and profound and soul-stirring and earth-shaking and mind-blowing all at the same time all at the same time, in exactly that timeless moment, it's all happening. And yes, to find a playmate where you can meet there, yeah, just beautiful joy, that is. But then you could, you could make or be served the perfect, perfect chocolate souffle that would have risen just in the right way and would be just in between creamy and a little bit dry. (laughs) And you are just tasting that spoonful of chocolate mousse. I can just hear you. I did just have that experience, actually. You did? Yeah, the day that my book launched. And it went viral, and it hit the bestseller list. I was just, as you can imagine, my head was spinning. And so uh, my very dearest and best friend of forever long, thousands of years, we went out for dinner, and she took me to this glorious restaurant overlooking the, the water. And we had a couple glasses of wine at dinner, and then they brought this chocolate dessert that was so otherworldly, I tell you, I did, I did have a transcendent experience <laughs> eating this chocolate, and I had to just sit in front of it for a very long time because I could feel the emanating <laughs> off of it, and I sat, I just sat there enraptured by its essence for quite a long time, and then it was just one spoonful. I just took one spoonful oh. and I that spoon in my mouth and it exploded inside my mouth and I, you know, I couldn't speak. I couldn't speak for 
several moments I was just in, my friend was looking at me, watching this happen <laughs> on my face, you know, and it just, it, I just, I felt that perfection just uh. slide around in my mouth, uh. slide down <laughs> my <laughs> Heaven is in any moment, I have to say, that, that, that is available pretty much in any moment, but with that chocolate dessert, it was a no-brainer. That's so fascinating because you were talking a few minutes before and I had that chocolate souffle experience. Yeah, there it was. So, yes. May, may I say that if you have enough of an ecstatic experience, it touches everyone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, well, you know, I hope that that is what happens. That, you know, the Stuart Savotsky, who wrote the foreword to the book, said something so beautiful in the foreword that by just by holding the prayer that he offered for the reader mm-hmm. is that just by holding the book, that ecstasy would emanate from the book and reach the reader, that the energy is being carried in the book in such a way that it reaches the reader energetically that way. That would be, then nothing would give me greater joy than that, really. Well, that was definitely my experience with the book. It wasn't so much, uh, although, as I say, I sat down and I read it from one end to the other. It wasn't so much the story because, and that's, that's I'll say, well done about it. That's, it's a story that many women have lived. And men, too. I yeah, think. yeah. So for some of us, who have investigated our stories quite deeply, it's not so much the story, but it's how it infu- how the book infused me. Mm, I love that. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. That's so beautiful. So, what should we talk about now? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well... What I'm what I'm imagining is how can we communicate to people that the experience of ecstasy and joy is free and available to everyone and that it will help everything. <laughs> Well, you know how um, there's there's people that you encounter where you get a sense about them that they've got a secret. They just, they walk about in life, and I don't mean like a bad secret, I mean like they're, they've got, they're on to something. Mm-hmm. And I think that when a person has found these profound, deep states of, bliss and ecstasy, uh, and they are nourishing and nurturing that connection in some ongoing way, whether that's through regular chanting or meditation or prayer or ecstatic dancing, all of which I have done, by the way, for years. Right. Um, and that place starts to take residence inside one's heart, and it's, it's an alive pulse. You know, my, my sense now, and it's not that I don't have days like everybody does where, you know, I get aggravated by the traffic or frustrated with how slow my computer is or, you know, all the sure. stuff of life. But in the background, always now, in the background, I am aware, right like breathing on my shoulder, is this state of ecstatic bliss. And that all I have to do really now, after years of, you know, praying and chanting and dancing and whirling and agonizing and all of it, now I just have to slightly turn my head to that whisper on my shoulder. And it's right there. And I think that when you encounter people where they have made a connection 
that in themselves. You can feel it. It's palpable. You, you, you have a sense in their presence that they're on to something that you want. Yes, yes, yes. And you can't quite necessarily put your finger on it, but you can feel they're on to something that you want. And I've put myself in the presence of those who I have felt that with to suck everything I possibly can in their presence. Right. And, you know, I, I hope, you know, that in some way, in some measure, my journey has, uh, you know, ha- has invited people in the same way, you know, that they will sense either in my presence or in the reading of the book uh, that, that I'm on to something that they want and there's a beckoning. That would, you know, my greatest joy would be that the, the book is beckoning, that it's whispering. Mm-hmm. My, you know, my domain name is Soul Whisperer. Right. And, you know, it'd be wonderful if the book is a whisper to the soul of the reader to say, come follow, come find me, I'm here. Not me, but their soul. Yes, yes, of course, yes. But isn't it that... Or let's say I find that hmm, people who haven't felt, I'm going to call it joy, people who haven't felt pure joy in a long time, maybe since they were babies, they tend to see these people, sense people with this je ne sais quoi, (laughs) and they... They will put them on pedestals and uh, or put them down. Uh, up or down is the same thing. Yeah. Um, so my question is, well, let's say I, I kind of asked that question to Vandana Shiva last night and uh, who I was privileged to hear. And uh, she the way she answered it is... Uh, our minds are colonized, so we do it to ourselves to feel to ourselves to feel less than. I mean, I'm getting to something. How do we communicate to people that they can have it? They can have it in the blink of an eye. It's it's built in. It's right there. Each person's joy is right there. the the reading of my book in particular there's I think once a person has read it there's not a chance I could be held up on a pedestal uh, you know I am not presenting myself as a saint who has meditated you know a hundred years in the Himalayan cave right. I am a, a human woman who has made every human mistake I could have possibly made on my pathway here and every one of those, well, not every one, but most of them are enumerated in the book. I mean, that's, it's, a, it's a real, raw human story. And I think that that hopefully will help it be relatable. Uh-huh. You know, sometimes you have the, you know, the books written by all the saints and all the gurus, and the everyday, ordinary, average person reading that in the middle of their cup of coffee on their way to work, you know, in between their children crying and they're paying their bills, may that might seem a bit inaccessible, that journey right. to them. You know, most of us aren't going to step away from this life and go into a Himalayan cave, and nor would that necessarily guarantee enlightenment anyway. This story is about you know, the enlightenment of everyday life. Right. The the way that I found it through the actual struggles of my living in an embodied world as a mom, as a wife, as a single mom, as a woman, as a lover, as a friend, as a daughter. And um, so that's one thing I wanted to say. But but the the challenge, how do we communicate that it's available in any second. Now that is a that yeah. is a question you might have to ponder here for a minute because it is actually available in every second. 
But I think you have to climb the mountain sometimes in your own journey to arrive at that knowing. You know, it's that great Zen koan that we leave home and we journey around the world Mm. just to arrive at where we began, Mm. but to know it really for the very first first time. time. I, I don't know that you can abort the journey. That's why we're sent here embodied. Right, To right. have the journey that takes us all around the globe just to return to the place where we started and know it really you know, for the, first the very time. first time. Yeah. Tina, do you consider yourself enlightened or in some form of enlightenment and... Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> no. 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 <laughs> I can I was waiting for you around that one. No. Uh, no. I consider myself a human woman on a very personal journey, doing the best I can, making meaning out of my suffering, offering that meaning others in whatever way it might serve them. Uh, No, I don't. No. Yeah, yeah. That's that's good. I don't don't either. (laughs) Truthfully, I feel more humbled every day of my journey, not less so. More humbled. More stripped down naked of any of the grandiosity that I may have carried anywhere along the way. I mean, really, this journey stripped me of everything that I had ever thought I was. And I'm really undefinable to myself now. Mm. Mm. Hmm. And that terrified me for the first little while when I had stripped everything off and surrendered everything. There was a momentary panic of, uh uh oh, well, if I'm not all of that, what am I? And I was terrified until I actually noticed there was nothing to be terrified of here. This was actually a beautiful place to be. Mm-hmm. I know nothing. I have no way to uh, define myself anymore. I am moving in one moment to the next, and that's all I know. Trying to be as fully, completely, and utterly available and transparent to each moment that is offered to me as I can humanly possibly be, Mm -hmm. and that's all I know. Mm-hmm. And yet, I'm remembering that uh, that phrase. I think it's Camus who wrote it. In the middle of winter, inside myself, I found an invincible summer. Exactly. I I have that awareness, and I mm-hmm. I hear it in you. Yes. It's, yes. Exactly. And it, it did, you know, when, when I went through the whole dismantling of myself and my life, that was the image that I kept having, that, I, that kept recurring. The image was I all of a sudden was standing on a white, white, a whiteout, a completely mm-hmm. barren, white, Siberian winterscape. Wow. And that I was here knowing nothing, not knowing how to breathe, move, walk, live, eat in this terrain, but that all I had to do was breathe. That was it. Wow. And initially, old parts of me kept scrambling to reassert themselves. Of course. It wouldn't stick. They kept trying, they kept trying, they kept trying to to reestablish themselves in my identity and nothing would hold. And I just finally said, okay, I am nothing then. I am all of it and none of it. Everything and nothing. All at the same time. It's exactly that same 
timeless moment where it is everything and nothing, mm-hmm. all in the same moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I do believe is where we come from and what we are made of and what we return to. We have to go out into life and pretend to be something and someone long enough to learn that we're not any of that and then surrender it all again. Yeah, it's why I'm so grateful for Timothy Leary because um, I say that's where I broke my bowl. Yeah. Completely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Hmm. But, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a difference between the early stages of life, like for me as a child when I lost my mother and I felt like nothing. That's right. an inadequate kind of nothing. This is not that kind of nothing. This is a nothing that holds everything in it. Exactly. Exactly. And nothing that holds everything in it. And the broken vessel that is perfect in its brokenness. Yeah. And uh, and the moment where it's been put back together and it's more beautiful than it was when it was perfect before. Yeah. Yeah. Tina, we're coming around and I'm very, very, very much appreciating... Our conversation. You are such a gorgeous interviewer, Joanna. Oh, I have thank you. to say, the dance we have just danced leaves my heart so full and overflowing. Thank you. It's been really, really, really sweet. Very sweet. Very sweet. Yes. Tina, would you like to say something in closing? I get on my knees and I say, thank you. Mm-hmm. There's nothing else to say anymore, really. That's, that's, the, that's, that what, that's what's in every breath now, really, is thank you. <sighs> thank you.